Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Despite many places continuing to open back up, the coronavirus continues to move throughout the world. South America has now become a new epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. Brazil now has the second most cases of COVID-19, only behind the United States. And Brazil's President Bolsonaro is still refusing to impose strict measures to curb the spread. Other countries like Peru and Chile are also facing increased numbers. For more on how South America's numbers are going up, we'll speak to Alex Ward, reporter at Vox and co-host of the Worldly Podcast. The story somewhat begins and ends with Brazil. Their President Jair Bolsonaro has refused to take on the crisis, calling it a little flu, himself going outside and hanging out with supporters who are protesting lockdowns and promoting hydroxychloroquine as some sort of cure for the disease, although there's no evidence to support that. And in fact, there's a lot to say that it could be dangerous. So while some regional leaders, governors, etc., are trying to fight the disease, that's just not happening, in part because the president is unwilling to put the nation's resources behind solving it. So most of South America's cases are in Brazil, which is part of the reason, if not the reason, why South America has just exploded and having the WHO even say it is now one of the world's epicenters. That said, there are other cases happening elsewhere. But when we're really talking about South America's growth as a coronavirus hotspot, it really is because of Brazil. Peru and Chile are other big countries in South America that are starting to see a lot of cases. But let's focus on Brazil a little bit more first. Have they implemented any type of social distancing measures nationwide? Or, or is it a lot of this stuff just being done on the state and local level? It's really mostly done at the state and local level. I mean, Bolsonaro himself is not really willing to do a national program, let's say. Part of the political crisis that he has started in Brazil is that governors and mayors want to impose lockdowns, and they are imposing lockdowns in some of the biggest places in the country, Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo, but Bolsonaro doesn't want to do that. So this is leading him to fight with his own political leaders, some of which are in his own party. And for some, and these are experts saying this, there are some experts claiming that Bolsonaro is doing this in part to claim more political power for himself, that he's trying to use the coronavirus to gain more influence in the executive, to minimize the power of other leaders. And that seems to be backfiring because hundreds of thousands are getting infected, tens of thousands are dying, and it's just no end in sight for that crisis. As this virus has moved throughout the world, we've had different epicenters at different times. Obviously, Italy was one of the hardest hit. And you would just think that some of these other countries would have taken some clues from how they operated. Obviously, the United States tried to do that. Testing was one of our big failures early on. So, you know, you have to kind of learn as you go. And some of these countries just haven't been able to do that. I know there's different cases all over the place. In particular, some of these South American countries are very poor and they're very food poor. There's not enough to go around. So Brazil, Peru, Chile... A lot of people are having to break their quarantines or get out into the public markets, crowded public markets, because they need to buy food. I think it's undoubtedly true that lockdowns and testing and tracing, you know, these are the things that are prescribed and are the best practices you have. But 
the more you're looking at cases in South America and even parts of Africa, what we're finding is that lockdowns are kind of a rich nation's game. It's really hard for countries that have a high levels of poverty, high levels of people in the informal sector. These are folks that really aren't, aren't on tax rolls. They are musicians or artists or street chefs or whatever it may be. These kinds of folks aren't able to purchase food and store it for long periods of time. They need to go outside for work. They need to go outside to get food to consume day of. And you are seeing example and after example in places like Peru and Chile, wherever it could be. I mean, heartbreaking testimony from people where they're saying, I basically have to choose between social distancing or getting food for my family. And some have even said explicitly, like, if I go outside, getting the coronavirus is a possibility. But if I don't go outside and get food, starving is a certainty. And so this is the kind of choice now that people have to make in areas like South America. And it's part of the reason why social distancing and lockdowns and all these other kinds of measures, which have worked with varying degrees of success elsewhere, are just not really working in that part of the world. Interesting statistic from the 2017 census out of Peru. 49% of Peruvian homes don't own a freezer, basically. So you mentioned people having to go out and have to purchase day of food. They have to get their food every day at these local markets. And yeah, they're braving the large crowds to do so in that case. What do we know about the healthcare systems in the South American countries? Because obviously that is one of the big things, getting overloaded, too many patients, not enough support to go around there. What do we know about their healthcare systems? It differs depending on the country, but by and large, it's just not great. You know, there aren't that many ICU beds. Testing and tracing capabilities are minimal. The amount of doctors available for patients are low. And, you know, there are tons of people, as we were saying, poverty is quite widespread in South America. It's hard for people to pay for services. And so there's great inequality in terms of hospitals or medical centers in impoverished areas as they are, while there are some better ones in more urban centers and, and in richer areas. And so this is part of the other problem is that as more people get sick, the ability for people to go get care is just going to be really hard or even good care is going to be hard. And the other issue here is that South America is now entering its winter. Right here in the United States, we are heading into summer, but the Southern Hemisphere is heading into winter, and that gets to flu season. And this adds to the bunch of problems that the region already has with certain diseases like dengue, chikungunya, et cetera. You add flu, and then, of course, the coronavirus, it's only going to overwhelm already taxed and underfunded and under-resourced medical centers down the line. It just is not looking like a good situation to the point that I have experts telling me they're expecting a major collapse of South America's healthcare systems over the next few months. Alex Ward, reporter at Vox and co-host of the Worldly Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. As the country continues on the road to reopening, many cities are actually closing public roads to make way for restaurants and people. In order to allow for people to properly social distance, some public roads are being closed to allow these restaurants to expand their seating arrangements and provide more space for residents to run, walk, and ride. For more on how cities are making room, we'll speak to Mike Laris, transportation reporter at The Washington Post. It's been really quite interesting. I talked to transportation and city officials around the country for this story, and they basically said that they were trying to do everything they could to help businesses open up, especially restaurants where it was too dangerous to have people packed inside. They said one solution was to sort of help everyone get outside. And that even includes on public streets that have been closed down. That was done in Tampa. In Florida, it's being considered in Washington, D.C. It's being done in other places around the country. And the idea is just, can we do anything creative in this sort of awful period to try to 
help some of these businesses. And also beyond the issue of restaurants, you have people just needing to, to exercise, these officials say. Sidewalks in some places, crowded cities can be too narrow, sort of cars buzzing by. So they're trying to find ways to address that. What have officials said about some of these proposed ideas? It seems like they are getting a lot of support, at least, to close the roadways and whatnot. Really anything to do to get people out there and get the economy moving again. It's been interesting. I mean, I talked to the folks in Minneapolis, and what they were able to sort of cut through some of the bureaucratic problems that usually come up when you're trying to do anything in government. And they were able to stitch together, even in just the city of Minneapolis, 38 miles of protected roadways for walking, for biking, for rolling, for people with disabilities, just trying to find ways to sort of take this awful situation and see if they can't sort of ease people's discomfort. Oakland is a big example of doing this. They have a plan that's called Slow Streets. So they've been closing a lot of the roadways to allow people to get out and move. Tell us a little bit about what they've been doing. The people in Oakland were really early on this. And in talking to some of the cities elsewhere in the country, they've been talking to the people in Oakland. Oakland was able to So far, close off about 20 miles of neighborhood streets. They call them soft closures. That means they put up a barrier. They say no through traffic, but they let delivery trucks come in. They let people drive back up to their homes, but they just say, this is not a through street. This is not for sort of barreling through and that it's going to be used by more than cars. I mean, the folks in Oakland described seeing parents with young kids on scooters at the same time as a recycling truck, which is pretty hard to imagine. But the officials there said that drivers were taking it incredibly seriously and that parents were comfortable in these neighborhoods where they had clear barriers and said this is not for through traffic. Oakland's an interesting case, too, because they got some sort of feedback early on that, hey, this is welcome. They found from surveys, but they found that a lot of the people responding to the surveys were better off and tended to be whiter and from neighborhoods where people earned more money. And so what they did is just on Friday, they kind of rejiggered some of the program so that now they're also trying to target wider thoroughfares to try to slow down traffic so that if someone is walking to the supermarket or some other sort of essential place is what they call it, that the cars will be slower, that people will have more room to walk and that they'd be able to get across streets. So it's pretty interesting that the people have been saying essentially that they need to be nimble if, if changes like this are to be lasting. All right. You said it there. So the big question is traffic. How are they handling traffic? Because if you're closing streets that were once being widely used, let's say it's going to create backups in other areas. And I know traffic may be a little light right now, but we're already starting to see it pick back up as more people are getting out there. How are they going to handle this part of it? That really does seem like the crucial question you mentioned part of it, which is that Traffic is down a lot right now. And what the officials say is that in this context of slower than normal traffic, things have been working well. And they seem to be sort of dividing this into a couple pieces. In some neighborhoods, some of the officials I talked to, Oakland and others, say that they hope to be able to continue this for a significant amount of time. In those neighborhoods, the the contention is essentially that the traffic concerns will be less severe. These are neighborhood streets to begin with, not necessarily the best place for commuters to be cutting through in the first place. At the same time, you have had pushback. You've had people sort of responding that this is some sort of leftist effort to sort of take over the public streets for an ideological purpose. So you're going to have a discussion about what makes sense, especially as you point out, if there are particular neighborhoods where it really starts to jam up traffic. But the officials have been telling me, at least in the conversations I had, was that streets make up, what, 25, 30 percent of a city's real estate. And they're saying that they think that they could successfully balance 
the use of that real estate more toward people and walking and biking and things like that for the long haul. They think they can do it. It would be interesting to see if they're right. Mike Laris, transportation reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. Finally, for this week, we got news that hair salons and barbershops can now start reopening in California, although L.A. County will still have to wait a little longer. But while things have been shut down, there's been an underground world of haircuts. Barbers and stylists have made house calls under fear of potential penalties, and people have gotten freshened up under fear of potential shaming for breaking quarantine. For more on how people were still getting their hair done despite quarantine, We'll speak to Emily Guerin, reporter for KPCC and LAist.com. So I started noticing a couple weeks ago these barber shops on Lincoln Boulevard near where I live in the sort of Venice, Santa Monica area. They would be kind of covered with butcher paper, like the windows were taped up, but it seemed like there was someone inside. I saw once a couple sort of freshly shaven men walking out of one of them. And I was like, okay, like I think something's going on here. And then coincidentally, just a few days later, my hairstylist emailed and said he was making home visits and he had this sort of traveling kit and he had a whole plan to stay safe. And so I just started thinking like, this must be happening everywhere. And I did a quick Craigslist search and quickly found a number of posts of stylists in Los Angeles who were either offering home visits or had sort of converted their own garages or living rooms into basically clandestine barbershops. And I'm sure this is happening across the entire country. I know for myself specifically, I grew a beard during quarantine, so I need to get that fixed up by somebody. Uh, My hair is going crazy. In the middle of this whole thing, I had my wife cut my hair. She did a great job, but it wasn't done by a professional. So I've been in this mode where I'm dying to go get a good shave and a good cut. But you know that this was going down. You can see it when people have that fresh cut and it's like, hey, where'd you get that? And they're like, ah, you know, I know a guy or something like that. Well, what's interesting about that, too, is, you know, if you're a politician and you're routinely going on Zoom calls or Facebook Live to give these coronavirus updates, like people are scrutinizing them based on their appearance. So I was listening into a public meeting in Orange County where a woman who's a salon owner got up and she was just like, I'm a hairstylist. I can tell that a number of you have gotten our services in the past few weeks, yet you don't consider us essential enough to reopen. Kind of what's up with that? And one of the supervisors shot back, like, if you want a close up, you can tell that I have not had a haircut. Just come see me (laughs) afterwards. So there's definitely some risk of looking too groomed as a public official while salons are required to be closed. And that was a big conversation, whether it was essential or not. And, you know, obviously in the industry, it requires one of the closest person to person contacts that you can imagine. Somebody is physically touching you while they're working on your hair and all that. So that was always a big part of the conversation and why public officials deem them not essential and why they've been so late in the process to reopen. You spoke to a lot of people that had to cross the boundary and some people that needed work anyways. One person in particular, she was getting tested every week. She was posting screenshots of her results on Craigslist, and she even kind of created her own contact tracing network, at least getting the information of people in case she needed to notify somebody. So she was an employee at a salon and she was furloughed in March and was mistakenly informed by her manager that she was not eligible for unemployment. So she went six or eight weeks without any kind of money coming in. And during this time, she decided to place an ad on Craigslist and start cutting hair in her living room. She does mostly men's haircuts. And yeah, I mean, between clients, she sanitizes all of her tools. She 
vacuums and mops the floor. She wears a mask. She makes the clients wear a mask. She wears gloves. And her whole take was like, look, I didn't really have any other option. I wasn't getting any government aid. My rent is still due. Like, put yourself in my shoes. You know, what would you do if you were me? There's another story that was kind of funny where I guess uh, somebody was doing a home visit, but she had to wheel in the big hairdryer, you know, with the, the big right. Dome. She was doing a blowout, like a Brazilian yeah. blowout. Yeah, the big and dome, she, dome style hairdryer. Exactly. She was a little bit more paranoid. I would say the first woman we just talked about, Carmel, she was kind of like, you know, I know that the State Board of Cosmetology would punish me if they knew, but like, really, what are my options? My hands are tied. Whereas this other stylist I spoke with felt much more anxious. She said she could have done a lot more home visits than she was doing, but she was just afraid of getting caught. And she's a salon owner, so maybe she felt like the consequences for her would be higher. To my knowledge, there hasn't really been any enforcement of penalties. I guess the California Board of Barbering and Cosmetology had gotten about 651 complaints. Yeah, that's right. But I hadn't really seen anything as far as any type of punishments. Well, and I asked the Los Angeles mayor, Eric Garcetti, about this, and he said that they would be hesitant to kind of resort to penalties right away. They'd rather try to educate people if they found out that they were doing these clandestine haircuts. I'm sure... As I mentioned, at least in L.A. County, a few other counties, it will persist for a little bit. I think there's 47 out of the 58 California counties that have met these standards to start reopening. So L.A. will get there soon enough, I guess. But for now, there'll be some underground things. And, you know, it's just tough for people. Obviously, there was a lot of help coming from the government, but even a lot of these independent businesses couldn't get some money back. I know there was this one barbershop in Orange County. They applied for just $5,000 and they didn't get anything out of that. I do think that's part of it. A lot of small business owners really struggled to access the federal government loans for small businesses, especially in the first few weeks. And some of them still haven't, or some have gotten the money, but aren't sure if they can convince employees to come back. Employees might still be afraid of coming to work and would prefer to stay home for safety reasons. So that's been challenging. What's interesting, though, is just recently I started hearing from a woman who owns a barbershop in Los Angeles, and she sent me this six-point list, this plan she has of how she's going to reopen her salon and give like safe haircuts. And it's basically appointments only, everybody wearing masks, gloves, like disposable smocks on both the barber and the client, no washing hair, no blow drying hair, and then like full sanitizing between clients. So at least some salons are already thinking pretty hard about what they're going to have to do when they are eventually allowed to reopen. Right. Emily, just last thing, I saw that you have a new podcast that's coming out in July. Tell us a little bit about it. Basically, it's called California City. It's about the town of California City, which is this sort of failed master plan community. And for the past 60 years, various developers have been sort of making this promise that if you buy land here, you'll get rich one day. It'll be worth something someday. And it just has not panned out. And when does it come out? It comes out on July 13th. Emily Guerin, reporter for KPCC and LAS.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Daily Dive.